0: Paul was thinking, uh, talking about his devotional time, and uh, I found myself recently in Isaiah um, 30, 31, 32, and then who couldn't love Isaiah 55? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Anybody can say a a really big amen to that, yeah, and I want to say, that's for sure, (laughs) But he's telling us that so that we will appeal to him, that we would trust in him to give us the direction we need. But And then 56, anyone thirsty, let them come and drink. And uh, he talks about buying something without money. I still haven't figured that out, but I think there's probably a message in that. So uh, what a great week of fasting and prayer. Um, I hope you found some things to let go of and. Replace it with a more concentrated time with the Lord. Um, the morning prayer time has been rich here. Uh, churches opened at 5 o'clock. And evening time, Brad's been kind of c- conducting that. So uh, it's just having the sanctuary. We got, I want to tell you something. I probably need to lock the door sometimes when I'm in here because people come in and think I've lost my mind. But... <laughs> I just have a good time when I'm in here. Just want to buy myself. I have to remember somebody might be coming in here behind me. But uh, I I think the most pressing thing that we should be praying about, so what should we be focusing on? I think we need to really press into the, the throne of God on behalf of lost people. You remember that passage in Romans where Paul said, "My heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel be saved," and and you really think, "Well, yeah, I want I want people I know to be saved," but he takes that to a whole different level. Do you remember how he followed up with that? He said, "I would would I would myself be accursed if that could happen. I'd give up my spot." For them to get in, I don't. I haven't gotten to that point. I can pray that prayer, (laughs) but that, that showed you the depth of his burden for Israel. He said, "My heart's desire, my prayer to God, this is this is consume me for their salvation. I am consumed for their salvation." And that wasn't going to happen anyway. Paul might have said, "You know, I, I would. That, that's not the way the Lord works." It just showed that that's how passionate he was for them to come to the Lord. And I think God puts such a burden on our souls at times that we really get get serious about people that we know that are lost. And boy, we should get serious. Eternity—that's a long time. And I don't think we can understand the enormity of that word, eternity, because we're so time conscious. We we got a watch. We got a phone. We got clocks at the house. How many times do you look at your phone to see what time? See your watch. What's time? I'm still old fashioned. I wear a watch, and I look at my watch. We're just time conscious, and it's hard for us to think about something that's timeless. Uh, Randy Alcorn and, and I've mentioned this book before, but uh, you can get this book fairly reasonable. Just pull it up to use book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn. It is the most thorough book that you can find on heaven. There's, everybody that reads him, even scholars that read him, says that's the guy that has spent an incredible amount of time exhausting what the Bible has to say about heaven and you'll be surprised at some of the things you read like is that in there and so you go and yes that's in there he describes that when every person every person dies there is a judgment immediately an immediate judgment and he calls it the judgment of faith it's not the judgment seat of Christ—that is, the examination of believers' lives. This is not whether you get in or not. This is what you did for the Lord. The people of God, the believers, the body of Christ are going to be. Each of us is going to give an account of our lives, and and that bema seat is a reward it was reward and he said there is loss sometimes because everything we did is going to be wood hay stubble or gold or precious stones so there's going to be things that's going to be burned up but hopefully there's some things that are going to be turning out to be gold and precious to the lord so at 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 the he says at the very moment at the moment that a person dies they enter into a a judgment of faith And those who have faith in Christ, those who are believers, enter into heaven and all others enter into hell. Everyone else enters immediately into hell. Now, he he also says that both of those are intermediary. There's an intermediate heaven that is not the permanent heaven. In fact, it's not the heaven that we will be there very long because... If you dive into the Revelation, when all of this is over, there's seven years somewhere in the midst of whether people are mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib, whatever. There's seven years that the Antichrist is going to wreak havoc in the Middle East, in Israel, and try and will try to destroy Israel. That ends in a big battle, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Or at right, that very moment of defeat are cast into the lake of fire. Not hell, they're cast into the lake of fire. They're done away with. And then Christ sets up his kingdom, which is how long? A thousand years. A thousand years not in heaven. A thousand years here. We're coming back here. Now don't let that be a bummer. Because you might want to say, I don't want to come back here. I'm tired of here. I want to be there. That sounds really good being there. What's going to sound really good when you think about it when we come back here. Because the earth, the curse of sin is somewhat going to be lifted because Isaiah, another passage in Isaiah that's very powerful was, the lion is going to graze like an ox, eat grass. A child can play over the a place of a poisonous snake, and the snake doesn't have any intention of harm in the child. Not going to happen. The curse on animal life, the curse on the earth, everything's going to be lifted, and we're going to be busy reigning with Christ, doing something for a thousand years. Now, if that disappoints you that you're just in heaven for a little while, I'm sorry to break that to you. So here we are, the place we arrive not long after we're in heaven. You know, we come back here for a thousand years. And when that is over and and when it culminates, it culminates like this. uh, Satan during those thousand years is going to be locked up in a pit. And so there's not going to be any influence by him for a thousand years. And he's going to be turned loose. And the people that survived the tribulation and are still here when Christ sets up his kingdom, they said that if you die at the age of 90, you'd consider dying young. So even this uh, aging thing is going to be changed where the population, the, repop, the earth is going to be repopulated. And then when Satan is released, this is all in the Bible. I'm not making this up, believe me. It's in Revelation. He goes out and he, and he really orchestrates a revolt against Jesus in the kingdom of the capital in Jerusalem where Jesus reigns from, he's going to organize a revolt. And when that revolt is put down, the white throne judgment takes place. And that's when the wicked dead are raised and Satan and the wicked dead and hell are cast into the lake of fire. That lets you know that hell is not the permanent place. It's a temporary place. It's an intermediate place. Just like heaven to us right now we think that's going to be permanent that's all going to change there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth now i don't want to spend too much time on this because you know you can read revelation it's this it's really a great book to read and if you read it along with daniel just in matthew chapter 24 if you read those three and kind of layer them together it really helps explain what's going on um but I want, I want to get back to this idea that I think, I think we need to be more serious about the loss, because at the moment of death, there's a judgment of faith, and who do we know that we're not sure about? And who do we think are just, they seem like they're going to get, that they're in, Because they've been to church, they say the right thing, they believe in God, but remember what James 2 says, says you believe in God, that's really good, but demons also believe and tremble, that doesn't mean they're saved. I had someone tell me recently, sitting in a waiting area while someone was having a procedure, and um, I'll just tell you, they were from the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, and I wasn't going to start an argument with her right there. But she says, some people say, we don't believe in God, we but we believe in God. And, and I said, yeah, and you believe a lot more than that. There's people that say, we believe in God. I believe in God. And and it's like, that's my confession of faith. That That's not salvation. A simple belief in God is not salvation. That's not how we are saved. He did not tell Nicodemus, Dema, Nicodemus, you must believe in God. To be born of the Spirit, you have to believe in God. No, he says you have to be born of, of the Spirit. Not just believe in God, you have to be born of the Spirit. You have an encounter, a transformational encounter with the Lord. Or we say to people, well, you know, they're good, they're good people. Boy, that is a dangerous thing for people to think that because they're a pretty decent person and they even may go to church, but have they been born again? Have they been born of God? Do they know the Lord? If they died right now, would you have a question about it? Or we think maybe because they're connected with our family and and we pray for them that they're maybe going to, going to slip in under the cover of our prayers. And I think we need to get a little bit more personal in that with them. That they have to, they, the Lordship of Jesus, when we talk about believing God, we're really talking about believing Him in him enough to confess Jesus as Lord. Because the judgment of faith is not a judgment that God does. It's an examination of what per, a person has in their soul. It is a judgment they bring. It's a judgment we bring on ourselves, whether we confess the Lord and accept his lordship, or whether we're, we're incorporating the Lord and good works, or the Lord and other things. And really and truly, I think it's clear in scriptures that God is not going to share his glory with any idols And we may not have Molech and Baal and all these like in images, but we have them today. The God of prosperity, the God of money, the God of success. People sacrifice their children to Molech. That's what abortion is it's a sacrificing of children, innocent ones, to an idol. So here we are in a a world of idolatry and we have, people have God and something else. And God's not going to share his glory. You must be born again. You must, people have to surrender to his lordship. And that's why Jesus said there's going to be, there's going to be a gathering of people at the end, and, and, uh, you know, there's going to, they're going to say, well, you're Lord. He said, no, I'm not your Lord. You uh, you you didn't follow through with what you needed to do, and they're like, "Oh, well, what do you mean?" He said, "Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't know you. I don't know who you are." And these were people that were saying, "Hey, man, we preach. We had people healed. We we did stuff. We did ministry." And he said, "You did it in just for your own benefit. You didn't do that for me." because you've never looked at me as being your master, your Lord. Boy, at that very moment, isn't that a kind of a frightening moment? But yet, time and time again, when the people of God, when they get to that point, there just seems to be utter and complete peace for people who are ready and they know they're coming to meet the Lord. There's no stress on them. I want to take you to uh, to something about D. L. Moody. I want to share some things, and um, I was telling, I was showing this to someone earlier. This is a, uh, a biography of D. L. Moody, and this book was published in 1900. It's 120 years old, and William. Moody wrote this about his dad one year after his dad passed away. I found it, and they said it was in poor condition, but it's in good condition to be over 100 years of age. I want to share with you some things about D.L. Moody. He was a contemporary with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers in London, packed out metropolitan Baptist church. It's just... (laughs) it's unreal what Spurgeon, the, the crowds that came to hear Spurgeon. Some people said, I just came here to hear that man pray. And that's something to, he he was just in a class by himself, but he loved Moody and Moody was just the opposite. Moody was uh, not well-educated. People made fun of his grammar. People made fun of his word selection, but he was passionate for people, passionate for the loss and would pack out, you know, it, it was like two extremes. This guy was really intelligent. He's a master of the English language. And here's this guy that's struggling, but he's up here preaching with passion. And both of them are leading people to the Lord by the droves. And he preached for Spurgeon. They became so close. Spurgeon died in 1892. Moody died in 1899, seven years later. They were contemporaries. Close to the closest close same age. Susanna Spurgeon, Spurgeon's wife, gave D.L. Moody her husband's Bible. Now, that tells you how he ranked with them. D.L. Moody had three children, his wife, Emma, and he had three children. And they had a daughter, Emma, had a son named William, and had another son, Paul Dwight. Um, Emma married Arthur fit and they had one daughter and they named her Emma. (laughs) They were not letting go of Emma. Emma had Emma and Emma had Emma. Emma was born December the 16th, 1895, just four months after Will, who wrote this biography of his dad, Will and his wife, Mary had, um, a grandchild, and uh, that first grandchild was Irene, Irene Moody. Um, I'm going to say more about this in a little bit, but let me give you a little bit of background to Moody's parents. His dad died in in his 40s, so his they were kids when you know they were they had nine kids. And he died, the the father and the husband died in his 40s. So the mother Betsy lived to be 91. That's a pretty extreme, isn't it? And uh, her and her son D.L. share the same birthday, February the 5th. And he was preaching in San Antonio, Texas, and he always wrote his mom a birthday letter. And this is what he wrote to her just a few days before her. 91st birthday. says, by the time this letter gets to you, you will have entered your 91st year. Only think when you entered this world, Napoleon was fighting his great battles. Seems a long time as you look at history that has been made. Nations have risen and fallen. Some have come and gone. Yet you live and have all your faculties and good health. You have much to praise God for. And all your children rejoice to think you have been spared to us so long. But she became ill right about the time that she received that letter from him. And um, he hurried home to be with his mom. They all lived in Northfield, Massachusetts. Even though he had his ministry in Chicago, he was from Massachusetts, and that's where he lived. And um, he saw how low his mom was. And his daughter, Emma, just had... Her little girl that she named Emma, and she was only like three or four weeks old. And uh, she said, I want, I want her to see my baby. I want her to see her great granddaughter. So Moody went and got the little child and walked around to his mom's bed and said, um, Mother, this is Emma's baby. She is here. No response. He walked to the other side of the bed, no response. He did this several times. Finally, as he saw that she was really slipping away, he knelt down, put that child in his left arm, took his mother's hand and put on that baby's head. And he said the blessing. This is a great grandmother's blessing. He wanted wanted some response from her to, to let him know that she heard that. So he pleaded with her mother, if you know just what happened, give me some kind of sign that you are aware of what just happened. And her lips moved just a little bit. And he said, she knows her. He turned to him and he says, she's seen your child. And shortly thereafter, her journey was over. I want to show you a picture of Moody's wife. Emma, and her two granddaughters. Um, Irene is to your right, her left, and Emma, there's only four months apart. So um, Irene is Will's daughter and Emma is his daughter's daughter. Her last name was Fit, F-I-T-T. Um, in November of 1897, Irene was joined this, the one on the right was joined by a little brother named Dwight Lyman Moody. They didn't mind naming kids after the parents or the grandkids after the parents. There was, there was, uh, uh, Irene got, well, let me put it this way. The uh, Dwight was born in November of 97. And a year later, he died from spinal meningitis. So the only grandson that Moody had, he lost at the age of one. And he wrote, he was preaching in Colorado Springs when he got word that his grandson had passed. And he wrote this to his son and daughter-in-law. He said, I know Dwight is having a good time and we should rejoice with him. What would mansions be without children? He was the last to come into our circle, and he is the first to go up there. So safe, so free from all the sorrow that we are passing through. I do thank God for such a life. It was nearly all smiles and sunshine, and what a glorified body he will have, and with what joy he will await your coming. God does not give us such strong love for each other for a few days or years but it's going to last forever. And you will have the dear little man with you for ages and ages, and love will keep on increasing. What's really sad is just shortly after that, the little girl to your right, Irene, came down with pneumonia, and she did not win that battle with pneumonia. She passed away. Again, Moody's pen expresses his pain when he wrote, Irene has finished her course. Her work was well wrought on earth. She had accomplished more than any in their three score and ten. We would not have her back, although her voice was the sweetest voice I'd ever heard on earth. She never met me once since she was three months old until her last days of pain without a smile. I thank God this morning for the hope of immortality. I know I shall see her in the morning, more beautiful in her resurrection glory than she is here. Shortly thereafter, November 13th, 1899, a fourth grandchild arrived, Mary Whittle Moody. And he was preaching in Kansas City shortly, just right, I think the same time that he had that fourth grandchild to arrive in Moody became sick. he looked pale and his choir director, CC C. Case, he always had a choir director, Iris Sankey. Moody believed Moody believed in two things for his conferences and outreach. One they'd get there early and they'd have a lot of prayer. and two, he always had a good choir director. They he wanted, he wanted some singing and then he preached and gave altar calls. That's how it worked. prayer, singing give altar calls that's pretty good it's pretty good we we would do to emphasize that so the choir director looked at him and says you you feel okay uh he said well i didn't sleep well last night and he pressed him and he said um what's going on he said well i've been having some chest pains and didn't want to tell my family he wouldn't let me come if i told him i'm not feeling good and and as the conference went on in kansas city he kept preaching, but he got weaker and weaker, and finally he had to leave. And uh, so he boarded a train in Kansas City heading to Massachusetts. That was a long train ride. So he sent a telegram. This is the first time he had any communication with his family. He says, "Uh, doctors think I need some rest. I'm on my way home. That's all he said. But when he arrived in uh, Massachusetts, he sent a telegram back to his Kansas City friends saying, well, he's apologizing for not staying. But he said, if I did stay, this is what I was going to be preaching. Thou art not very far from the kingdom. But Moody would only grow weaker when he got home. And um, Will, about 3 o'clock in the morning, became obvious that he was not going to make it. And his son, Will, that wrote that book, was sitting up with him at 3 o'clock. And he heard his dad talking. He thought he was dreaming. He went to shake him like, you know, I think you're dreaming. He says, no, this is not a dream, Will. It is beautiful. It is like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me. I must go. Well, the nurse summoned the family and the physician who had spent the night at the house to come to his bed. And um, said he kept talking, and then he said to the ones around his bed, he said, "Um, I've always been an ambitious man. This is not far from when he died. He said, I've always been an ambitious man, ambitious to leave no wealth or possession, but to leave lots of work for you to do. Will, you will carry on Mount Hermon. Paul, you will take up the seminary. That's his younger son. Fit, this is his son-in-law. You'll look after the institute. And Amber, the nephew, says, he will help you in the business details. And it seemed like he saw beyond. He was looking beyond where he was at. And his son is recording all this in this book. He said, this is... This is my triumph. He said it clearly. This is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to it for years. And then they said his face lit up and he said in a joyful voice, Dwight, Irene, I see the children's faces. And he turned to his family and says, give them, give my love to them all. Turning to his wife, he said, mama, you have been a good wife to me. And he had this, time of lapsing into unconsciousness and coming out is it it's something to read to the very last he uh, he in fact he wrote up on his elbow the, the, the doctor was giving him uh, injections of nitroglycerin to keep him kind of going he leaned over on his elbow one time and he says I if I'm gonna if God's not going to do a miracle and I'm gonna die I can die in my chair just as much as die here so y'all help me in my chair. So he got him up and got him in a chair, and then he didn't feel good. He said, take me, take me back to the bed. But he turned to his wife, and he said this near then. He says, this is hard on you, mother, and I'm sorry to distress you in this way. It's hard to be kept in such anxiety. And then here come the doctor with another um, hypodermic needle with nitroglycerin, the, and he said to the doctor, doctor, I don't know about this you think this is best it's only keeping the family in anxiety and shortly after that he stepped across now his son kind of wonders what all that was that he saw well i'd say i think he saw his grandkids and it's amazing that somebody that had such he's only 62 It's estimated that he influenced three million people through his ministry. And when he died, there was memorial services all over this country. Um, Abraham Lincoln came to one of the sessions he was at in 1860. He visited POW camps during the Civil War. He, He was just a ministry machine and and the driving force in his life was he had been born of the Spirit, and he wanted everybody else to be born of the Spirit. He's the guy that I've heard you've heard me talk about that his Sunday school teacher went to his uncle's shoe store, and in the stockroom led this rambunctious teenager to Jesus, and then it was on. All he cared about was reaching street kids, and that went from doing kids ministry to hold in services. In fact, the church he tried to join, they wouldn't let him join for about 10 months because they didn't think he was mature enough to be a church member. They denied him membership. Boy, I tell you what, do that to somebody today and they'll be like, well, I'm out of here. I'll go down to the next church. (laughs) But he proved them all that he was real. At that moment, at that moment that we step across not a doubt in my mind that we get to see something really quick i remember standing next to brenda's dad's bed and i thought about this the lord was so gracious to her family and her dad's a great man we just always wondered about his salvation and um it was an accident. He, he got a fractured neck. He had a halo brace. They told us he, he should be he he should heal up. He should be just fine. Right before leaving for Christmas to come to see us, and uh, having been treated for leukemia, his immune system was low, and he turned septic. And in a few days, and his wife, his current wife, had him on life support, which is tough because then they have to go through the rigmarole war of doing that. And we was there when life support machine was turned off. But you know, I've, the more I thought about that, I I think they were just keeping him biologically alive. I think he was already, I don't know how all that works, but I, I just have a feeling that you can't keep the spirit here just by keeping the temple alive. And I, uh, the more I thought about that, the more I think, he had already seen glory. Her and Susan had prayed with him, wanted to make sure everything was good. And he was always positive with me. One day we're going to see it. And I want my family to see it. I want my friends to see it. I want people in that RV park over there where Andrew lives. I want them to see it. I don't want to see them lost we need to get a little bit out of our comfort zone because it's on our shoulders to tell people that there's hope and that hope is completely in the person of Jesus he died for them he was raised from the dead they can have eternal life they can experience the power of God the life of God the transformation of God in their lives and that's the gospel is is the point it is the whole point is what introduces people to salvation. There's no salvation without the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There's no salvation without the gospel. The gospel is basically this, that Jesus died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, and was raised three days later. And through that message, it says inherent in that message is the power to save a person. Not whether we say it emphatically, loudly, with tears. It's just that gospel will do the work if we'll just share it. So I'm going to challenge you on this week of fasting and praying to line up people on a prayer list that you're not really sure where they stand and pray to God that he would, they would encounter him in some way, that he would wake them up in the middle of the night, that he would do something. Because I just believe if we step up our intercession, I believe it intensifies the conviction of God in people's lives. I believe it affects. And when we say, well, God wants them to be saved, while he's, I just believe he, he has put it in our hands to work in this harvest. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, the labor is a few. Go, go, and as you go, you know, Dehomai is that. Pray the Lord of the harvest. He says, pray with yourself included to go into the harvest. And we got harvests all around us, don't we? Would you stand with me?